This is LOL DC. I'm Sheena Satum. I'm an Army brat, a self-help enthusiast, and I manage one of the top real estate teams in Washington, DC. I have three small kids, and I've had the privilege of serving on several nonprofit charity boards. I also run a women's empowerment group, and I teach real estate classes across the country. And all these amazing opportunities have allowed me to meet some of the most amazing people who I can't wait to introduce to you. We'll venture through DC and talk about some of the exciting things we're doing to make our communities a better place. One of the most recent projects we invested in was a shower truck for the homeless. We live in one of the most stressed out areas of the whole country. I think it's time for disruption. So sit back, relax. It's time for LOL DC. So I'm recording from my office in Capitol Hill today, which I guess I'd say is pretty apt for what I wanted to talk about on this episode, which is politics. Well, actually, probably less politics and more the level of political discourse, which is, I think most of you will agree, at rock bottom, guys. It's bad. It's really, really bad. And I've been thinking about this subject for quite a while, like long before the current presidency and the level of contention has just skyrocketed. And I guess I should put it in perspective because it's not like we're the sort of country where we're chopping people's heads off for denouncing our president. I mean, that actually happens in other countries. But I guess I just expect more here. I just expect that with the access to education and the access to knowledge and news and information that we would be able to have a dialogue that is more elevated, that's more advanced, that doesn't simply begin and end on emotions and doesn't go deeper. And I remember almost a decade ago, a few of my friends were talking and one was saying, well, you know, if we're gonna all meet up, we just have to make sure that we're not talking politics. And I thought we're really close friends. Like if we are not talking politics, like politics are just our values. Like, if we don't know each other's politics, if we don't take the time to understand, I think we are perhaps being dismissive, absolutely not trying to be tolerant or understanding. Like, what level of friendship do we have if we don't really understand each other, our sense of values, and how we truly feel about the world? People really do shy away from political conversations, unless we're on some social media platform, especially if we can be anonymous or if we don't know the people that we're talking to, then people just seem to be fine unloading on each other. And people spend so much time arguing, but really they get nowhere. Nobody learns anything. Nobody is moved to do anything differently. So really, what's the point? I mean, like, how do we walk away from those conversations We might feel a little bit better, like we stood up for something, but what's the end result? In most cases, the way that we argue, it ends up being a complete attack. Take, for instance, some of the examples of bullying on the government's official Stop Bullying website. Teasing, name-calling, taunting, threatening to use harm, spreading rumors about somebody, or embarrassing them in public or in a public forum. So how different is that from how we treat each other on social media platforms in real life. We see it on social media. We might even have been a part of it at some point, maybe every day. Cable news stations, we're watching, our kids are watching. And frankly, you don't even have to go to cable news stations to see this low level of discourse. 
You can go to C-SPAN now and see our members of Congress and our president talking but not actually communicating. Look, politics has always been and will always be a place of friction. It's where we determine how resources should be allocated. So that completely makes sense. And we shouldn't expect for there to be no conflict. That's just part of the human experience. What I'm suggesting, however, is that we think about the kinds of things that we say to our kids. Like when our kids are bullied or when they face a particularly contentious situation, what do we tell them? We never tell them to act in the way that I think a lot of us feel it's acceptable to engage with other adults. I think that if we knew our kids were watching and listening, I think they would be pretty confused sometimes by our responses given what we've taught them, which is often pretty different than how we actually engage. I have a business coach who once remarked when I was telling him how I thought my agents should be playing something out, and he said, gosh, you're not even holding yourself to that standard, and he called me a fraud. And I kind of think that's sort of what we do sometimes. We kind of act fraudulently when we are telling our kids one thing, how to act, and then we do something completely different. We're not holding ourselves to that standard. So if we're going to expect for our kids in this next generation to be kinder and more tolerant and open and understanding, then I think that we have to model that. Like we can't wait for public figures to do that. That's our job. And the reason I think it's so important for us to look at things that way is because that's where we have the control. Grant Cardone, super famous business guy, wrote the 10x rule. And he talked a lot about the power of taking complete responsibility for everything in our lives. And it's super empowering. And he explains it in this way, that if you are constantly of the mindset that it's someone else's fault or someone else is bringing this out of you or that's why you're angry, that's why you're upset, that's why bad things are happening, that's fine, but that leaves the control in somebody else's hands. So if you just say to yourself, I'm the one in control, I'm gonna take responsibility for my reactive thoughts and my actions, then you have the capacity, the ability to actually change your circumstances. So it doesn't matter how others are responding. It just matters how you respond to them. I mean, remember those words by Dr. King where he talked about darkness not being able to drive out darkness. He said in Where Do We Go From Here, it was published in 1967, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing that it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think if we accept that premise and let it really sink in, I think it provides a really good foundation. But where do we go from here? what's the path? If we're not going to fight fire with fire, is there some kind of path that we can follow so that our political discourse is not just elevated, but that it can really truly inform policy to the next level, that we can actually come together and move things forward to make our country better? I think the answer lies in Harvard philosophy professor Michael Sandel's TED Talk. It's called The Lost Art of Political Debate, and it's been viewed over a million times. And this is the guy, you might know him, whose government class on justice is on YouTube, and it's been viewed almost 10 million times by people around the globe. 
and the syllabus for this course is online, and I have to read you one of the lines. The course invites learners to subject their own views on these controversies to critical examination. How many times a day do we think about things that are really important to us and think, maybe I'm wrong? It takes some time to watch, so I'll just offer my summary. He is eloquent, smart, careful, open-minded, calm, and unemotional, and he uses logical, deductive reasoning to get his conclusions across. He's basically arguing that there's no attempt to understand why someone thinks the way that they do. People simply make assumptions about each other. They put them in boxes, they label them, they slam the door shut, and they stick their fingers in their ears, and they just stop listening, just like a kid having a tantrum. I don't think he ever compares anyone to a kid, but that's kind of how I see it. One of the key examples he gives is over the discussion of same-sex marriage. And he says we really have to think about the arguments underlying why people have the position that they do or why they have come to the conclusion that they have. So take, for instance, people who tend to be against same-sex marriage. Their understanding of marriage, the purpose, is for procreation, worthy of honoring and protecting. Whereas people who tend to believe in same-sex marriage, that is not their underlying value. That is not their underlying reason for why they believe in marriage. With their understanding, it's about a lifelong mutual commitment to each other. And this is so important, he says. And he pulls from Aristotle. He says, it's hard to argue about justice without first arguing about the purpose of social institutions and about what qualities are worthy of honor and recognition. So if we actually think about that, how people got to where they are and what their definitions depend on, then we can start to elevate our conversations and really dig in. But it is going to require something very different than what we're used to. Professor Sandel pulls from Aristotle and he says, it's very hard to argue about justice without first arguing about the purpose of social institutions and about what qualities are worthy of honor and recognition. So you have to start there. You really have to understand how people are defining things from their worldview before you can really figure out how to move forward together and come to some kind of reasonable compromise. But that means we have to do something different than what we have been doing before. We have to stop avoiding conversations around our fundamental beliefs. He says a better way is to engage directly rather than requiring everyone to leave their deepest moral convictions, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum, outside the doors of politics. Like you have to bring them inside. They weigh on every decision and we ought to just put that on the table. I think the easiest way to digest this is to think about love languages. And for anyone that doesn't know what love languages are, it's basically this idea, this concept that we all express and feel love in different ways. So for some of us, we need gifts to feel loved and that's how we like to express our love. For others, it's words of affirmation. So maybe a husband tells his wife, you're looking good in those jeans. My husband knows neither of those work on me. I am all about acts of service, which basically means get stuff done. Don't buy me anything. Don't touch me. You don't have to say that I'm looking cute. I just need you to take out the trash. So the whole theory behind love languages is that when you understand how another person feels love and you're able to express love to them in that way, then they will feel the highest level of love. But if you are expressing your love in a way that only you can feel and they're not feeling it, you're going to have a disconnect. 
So imagine a couple where the husband travels all the time for work. He's gone throughout the week and he loves nice things. That's why he works so hard and he travels so much and he buys himself nice things while he's on his travels and he buys nice things for his wife. And when he comes home, he showers her with all of these gifts and he goes back to work in his office on the weekends. And so this goes on for some time and they start to get in these arguments. And at some point she just says to him, like, I don't think that you love me. And he says, how can you say that? You know, I come home and I bring you all these wonderful things. And she says, that's not what I want. I just want you. And then the light switch goes off because he realizes that it's not the gifts that she wants. It's him. But the underlying assumptions just were not the same. They were coming at it from very different places. And not until that was on the table could they really start to have discussions that would move their relationship forward. So it's not likely the husband is going to change his own love language. It's kind of like your preferences for certain types of food. Perhaps if you taste something you really don't like enough times, you might be able to tolerate it, but it doesn't mean that you're going to become a fan of this food. However, if you tried, you could understand how somebody else might like that type of food. You could understand how somebody else might feel love and express their love in different kinds of ways. But if we're going to make a relationship work, then we have to understand the other person's deep-seated beliefs and feelings and understanding about what love is, how it's manifested, and how they feel it. You know, when we get in the habit of acting and responding a certain way, I think it's really hard to kind of go in the other direction But I think that we owe it to ourselves to at least try, especially knowing that what we're doing isn't working. It might just start with a discussion between you and somebody like-minded or somebody who just has totally different viewpoints to just start thinking about things, coming at really controversial ideas with a more open mind, coming from curiosity instead of ready to attack, engaging in debate with questions and your brain set to learning instead of preparing to respond. It's not easy, but it's possible. Every second Saturday of the month in Baltimore, there's a group called Generosity Global, a nonprofit organization that has been feeding the homeless. I think they're on their 97th month of feeding the homeless and serving. Hundreds of volunteers come out to serve hundreds and hundreds of homeless people. It's not your typical day of service. It's really like nothing else. The people who have organized this, they have really set up a culture around Selfless Saturday. The idea is to serve with an open mind and a big heart. So if you ever go, you'll see people of different ethnicities, people of all different religions, people without religion, people of different economic backgrounds. They are serving with a smile. People hugging homeless people. Like how often do we see that, right? And we're there to really connect with the people that we're serving because that could be any one of us. They're not so different from you or me. They've just found themselves in a really tough spot. And we get to meet them there on that moment, on that day. And you'll notice that everybody's setting aside everything else that happened to them in the week. You don't see people stressed out. It's all focused on the people that we are serving. And somebody explained it like, it is the aftermath of a catastrophe. That's how Selfless Saturday is. There is this lightness about everybody there. The Generosity Global Village, all these volunteers, they actually see themselves as family. Now, they don't look like family, but they come together every second Saturday. 
like nothing else matters except the people in front of them who are in need that day. Now, if we could come to every conversation, every experience, wipe the slate clean and start to think about our interactions like that, I really think that we could change the world. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. On our next episode, we are going to talk to a friend of mine who I met in grad school when she was an open-minded Republican. That was about 10 years ago, and since then, she has become an open-minded Democrat. So you'll get to hear her story, and I'll be asking her questions around what she thinks we can do to elevate the level of political dialogue. Until then, I just wanted to remind everyone that as of this recording, we have just exceeded 30 days of the government shutdown and people are struggling. The food banks are having a hard time keeping up. So I just wanted to give people some ideas of how we as neighbors and good citizens can help. Recently, I put together a food donation drive in my neighborhood, and I posted on Facebook and next door and told friends about it, and I have a truckload of donations that generous people in our neighborhood um, brought to my house. So it's not hard. It was really easy. I just put the word out there. I got some groceries myself, and I've got a ton of stuff that I'm bringing to our local food bank. There was one lady that actually responded publicly saying, thanks so much for lighting a fire under us. And she brought so much food. I want to say she brought like five trash bags worth of food. She was on her way to Wegmans anyway. So, um, you know, everybody wants to help. It's just not everyone knows how. So here it is. Uh, Giving to the local food banks. There's also uh, diaper banks in our area, the greater D.C. diaper bank collects diapers, formula, hygiene items as well as baby food and new clothing. Finally, if you have access to a place of worship or community center or somewhere that could hold um, a good number of people, it might be worth asking if they would be interested in doing a dinner or a breakfast. And so they've got the facilities. They may have some volunteers. And to pay for it, you could use GoFundMe, which I found to be really successful. Now, if you can go that big, that's awesome and exciting. If you can't, anything extra that you can give will be greatly appreciated. So just do your part and together we can make a huge difference. Well, that's a wrap. Until next time, be well, my friends.